Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. In our podcast today, we're going to talk about the history of public health. We'll then talk to Professor Adil about his experiences currently working in the field, and we'll end up with a case study. Public health is huge. In short, it is preventing disease and improving the quality of life through the actions of individuals, government, and both formal and informal groups of people. So it could be just about anything. The history of public health is the history of national health services, hospitals, asylums, nursing, and much more. Rather than trying to cover absolutely everything, we're going to look here at the early history of the public health movement, what caused it, and what was done. We're mostly going to look at Britain, but of course similar stories could be told from all over the world. In one series of medical lectures delivered at the University of Edinburgh in the 1790s, the list of public health issues the students were warned of was a long one. It included unwholesome air, heat, cold, smoke, humidity, damp houses, the effluvia of marshes, dunghills, human remains, slaughterhouses, soap boiling, washing laundry in hard water, improperly boiled beef, drinking rainwater and melted snow, the use of wooden pipes for conveying water, and contaminated bread and beer. Some of these problems were the result of individuals carrying out their day-to-day activities, but most were broader issues beyond their control, issues of sanitation, environment and poverty. The expansion of urban centres which took place during the 1700s put increasing pressure on already inadequate housing, water supply and waste disposal facilities. Cities in the north of England, particularly Newcastle, were disproportionately affected by these developments. The result, in large part, of economic migration to the area. The population in Newcastle was particularly unevenly distributed, with most of the city's growth restricted to within its medieval walls. While wealthy inhabitants had begun to move further away from the city's industrial and maritime centre, newer migrants seeking work continued to mostly settle close to the river. By 1801, one parish in Newcastle, All Saints, had the highest number of inhabitants in Britain, surpassing even London, with nine people per home. The development of necessary amenities did not keep pace with these demographic changes. In the early 1800s, water was only available from the city's wells two days a week. 
and frequently ran out before all those who were waiting could be supplied. In Edinburgh, similarly, ineffective attempts were made to mitigate the deficiencies of that city's water supply towards the end of the 18th century. New rules were introduced by the town council in 1799 which regulated water distribution, including limiting the amount that could be taken into private residences and barring those collecting water from the city's wells from using vessels which could hold over 20 pints. Shortages of water were not the only concern. Water leaking from pipes and public wells created patches of stagnant water. In combination with industrial and domestic refuse and the lack of effective sewage disposal, this created significant hazards for the local populations. There were also major food shortages caused by harvest failures in the 1700s and early 1800s. A fall in wages and rising prices of grain and other foodstuffs resulted in severe shortages. In cities across the north of England and Scotland, action was taken by civic authorities during particularly difficult periods to provide subsidised or free food for the local poor. The poverty and malnourishment of so many people led to increased outbreaks of infectious diseases. One Newcastle charity writing in 1801 said that, quote, The typhus has still been very prevalent and occasioned much misery and considerable mortality and as the contagion of this disease is constantly preserved in some of the habitations of poverty, it is to be feared that the lower orders of society must continue to suffer severely from the spreading of this distemper till such time as adequate provision shall be made by public munificence, not only for removing the persons first attacked by the fever at an early period into well-ventilated apartments, but also for purifying the clothing, furniture and infected habitations of sick families, as soon as the disease shall be over. There was a growing interest in the 1700s in the health of the public, in Britain usually known as public health, and in continental Europe as medical police. On the continent, particularly in France and Germany, this idea became associated with state action and tended to take the form of increasing regulation of public works, such as street sweeping, water supply and waste disposal. In Britain, the focus was more on charitable or voluntary action, rather than action by local or central government. In 1807, Britain's first professorship of public health was established at the University of Edinburgh, after decades of campaigning by physician and past president of our college, Andrew Duncan. The public health lectures delivered at Edinburgh University included detailing the measures which civic authorities could and should take, such as improving sanitation, the regular fumigation of jails, replacing existing water pipes made from wood and lead with iron ones, the drainage of marshy land, and ensuring that the slaughtering of animals took place outside urban centres. Indeed, Andrew Duncan was so fervently in support of the moving of slaughterhouses that he stated that, quote, the magistrates of Edinburgh should all be induced to bear the duck in the South Sea for their extreme negligence with respect to it. Advice provided by others was less helpful. Sir John Pringle, for example, described in his writing how, when visiting one of his sick patients, that he had, quote, made a servant, a young man, strip, go into bed, and take him into his arms in order to give him heat. But for the poor who did not have a handy spare bed, or manservants who could be impelled to expose themselves to potential infection, the options were considerably more limited. So in our podcast today, we have Professor Adil here with us. So can we just start off with you just explaining who you are and what it is that you do? Oh, thank you, Daisy. And uh, thank you for having me on this uh, podcast series. 
So I am Mahmoud Adil. Uh, I am fellow of the, the college uh, and I trained at, originally as a pediatrician. And then I did my high training or specialist training in public health medicine. And while doing so, I did also get my higher qualification in management, economics and health informatics, which made me a little bit more rounded public health physician. Uh, but again, uh, I think my uh, day job also entail, I'm honorary professor at the University of Glasgow, but currently I'm the National Healthcare Advisor uh, to the Minister of Public Health, Qatar. So I've got a slightly horrible question to start off with, which is, you obviously, as you say, work in public health. So what is public health? How do you define what it actually is that you do? Yeah, I think it's a simple uh, question, but as well as a very complex question. Let's start with the simple side, yes. So I think the general definition of public health uh, could be that it is uh, protecting and improving the health of the public. So it is in a way population medicine. So I think that's a simple comparison, but if you think about, of course, COVID, it is a big intervention which we are doing and that's public health. Chronic diseases, that is public health. And even the violence is public health because the intervention you do, it is on the mass masses and it is, on, it is about the public. But if you go by the more specific scientific definition of public health, which is by WHO, then it is the art and science of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting health through the organized effort of the society. The most important part is the organized effort of the society. So it is not individual medicine that you can apply with your own knowledge, but you need to work with and through all the stakeholders in the society to bring those outcomes, that is protecting and improving the health of the nation. Thank you. So, you know, people might not be aware of, of you know, the exact definitions that you've just given, but people are aware of public health. You know, there are some medical specialties that, that maybe people don't think about, but public health is something that is in people's minds. But do you think there's anything that people would find surprising about what it looks like in reality? Or are there any stereotypes that people have about public health? Well, I mean, over the years, I think from my training days uh, till now, you can have, you can see different perspective of people about the speciality. So sometimes people say, used to say, it's you are jack of all trades. So where nothing happened, people put public health people there. Uh, but the, or it's a very easy speciality because if we look at the young trainees who are coming into medicine, they say, oh, it looks like all of the specialties have got a bit more tough training and the public health is a relatively easy speciality. So these are a few of the, myth, a few of the myths that the training is not as organized as in a clinical speciality. But I think the most important part, which people sometimes don't realize, that the public health physicians or public health specialists, they are part of the engine room. So they work in the background. A lot of things which are happening in the front end, which is running the hospitals, uh, giving medicines, uh, diagnosing patients, all those things need policies, planning understanding the need of the population. And that's the engine room. So every health system has got an engine room. Every organization has got an engine room. And that is where public health people uh, sit. But with COVID, they became the frontline workers. Suddenly the public realized, you look at the media, I mean, the CMOs are there. They say, oh, these are public health. And then you look, they're doing public health roles. 
And then you start looking at many of the people and the media, they start realizing, oh my God, these are very, very important skills uh, doctors or specialists have, and they are utilizing it to save, uh, to save lives in COVID. Thank you. So I'm given everything that you've just said, this is probably an even more impossible question, which is you've talked about all the different things that you do, all the different bodies that you have worked for. Is there such a thing as a day in the life that you can talk us through or is that just every day is completely different? Well, uh, I think it depends uh, where you are. Let me say that broadly speaking, there are three type of roles the public health specialists play. Leadership role, technical role, and then the academic role. So it depends where you are. And also, when I say depend where you are, you could be part of the local health system. You could be part of the national health system. You could be part of the international health. So looking at those, in a way, three by three, leadership, technical, academic, local, national, international, your day could be different. But let me tell you, uh, uh, the day could be, if I say, if you are in this um, uh, so-called in the uh, if I go back when I was a medical director for Public Health Scotland, which is the national organization responsible for public health functions in Scotland, then of course, uh, some of your time spent in front of the computer more than the average professional, because you are reading a lot of papers, and then you're dealing with a lot of communication. So that is one part of your day. And you need to be pretty structured because if you are all the time reactive, uh, looking at your email doesn't work. At least I always said it and did my best to lead by example that you need to have it sometime in a day where you are focused on that sort of communication reading. Other part of the day could be that you are researching because let me give you an example that uh, we uh, did develop uh, many policies in Scotland on public health, and one of them was mental health, right? If you're working on a mental health policies, you need to think, actually, what is this policy for? Can I get that, can I engage with that person or that community? And how best I can raise the awareness? When we talk about raising the awareness, you need to have some time for the media. So you would see that, the public health specialists, they are pretty good uh, in communicating with the media. At least they have been trained and this is one of the competencies required. So it means the day could entail that you're spending some time dealing with the paperwork, which is very important. It's not like simple messages. It would entail uh, uh, developing the evidence because your ultimate goal is you need to develop evidence-based policies or evidence which can convince people. When I say people, that you need to be spending time with professionals, with public, and with policymakers, and with uh, the uh, 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 and with the media. So I think that's the way your day look like, and at least that was the time my day looked like. And if you have got some academic interest, then of course you need to have some time where you are either teaching or training. And I think that was also part of my um, part of my day. Thank you very much. So it's it's obvious that, you know, you, you find all the different aspects of your work very engaging. But I'm curious as to how you got to this point. So, you know, had you always wanted to work in public health? You know, what what, what was the moment that sort of struck you and made you decide to go down this path? To be honest, there was no Eureka moments came. Uh, it is not just like I was sitting and said, oh, I want to be a public health uh, physician. 
uh, I think uh, choosing a specialty or a career is not an easy task, right? It is science and an art. So the way I, when I look back, uh, I can tell you about how did I choose, but I just see you, you need to understand your own aptitude. You need to be guided by people. And then third, you need to have some role models. So aptitude, guidance, and role models. So when, if I go back almost 30 years when I came out of medical school, I, I think I had the aptitude of system thinking because I went to the ward taking care of patients. I just realized I'm not, if the right medicine is not available at the right place, the right time, in spite of my best efforts, I won't be able to help the patient. Then I realized I'm working in a system. It is not only my competencies which are important. I'm dependent on other people. I need to have the nurse. I need to have pharmacists. I need to be thinking where the, the medicine being kept. All those things helped me to develop system thinking. And I think that was my first step towards the direction of public health. Then I went to uh, my professor of community medicine. They used to be called community medicine. And then I said, look, I mean, I, I enjoy that part of management. And she said, you are the person who should go into community medicine. And then she was, uh, she was the graduate of John Hopkins. And then she said, I should go to John Hopkins. And that is where a very, very important uh, turn came into my life because I could have ended up in America, but I felt I need to be in the UK because I was always a big admirer of NHS. So I came from Pakistan, did my first degree. Next very day, I was in Glasgow. Exactly the next very day, and God bless my father, he said, look, if you want to go and taste public health and you feel it is public health is best delivered in UK, you better go. And I ended up in Glasgow and did my MPH. And then I did my uh, the membership fellowship in clinical speciality, went back to do my training in public health in Wales. And then uh, I became consultant and basically never looked back. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Every specialty has got challenges, but I think you need to have the passion. And I think I do have that passion and I'm enjoying every, every bit of it and every day of it. Thank you. So as, as you said, you know, you've, you've, you've been in Glasgow, you've, you've been in America, you've obviously been in Pakistan. In, in your experiences, in your working in all these different places, are there any moments, any cases, any um, di disease outbreaks? Are, is there anything that sort of really struck you over the course of your career as sort of interesting or pivotal moments? Of course, there might be many, but uh, let me take it as a very lighthearted way. So I went to America, all right, my first week at Yale School of Public Health. And, you know, I landed, I still remember, I landed there uh, end of December, and it, I was in New Haven, Connecticut. And the, uh, the snow was almost some three, four feet. So, and the Americans have this, this sort of trend, have it called uh, so-called breakfast meetings. So my first breakfast meeting in January, and I turned up at Yale School of Public Health, and it was real breakfast, big table, and it full of a lot of stuff. You know, what was that? Donuts, bagels, and you name it, any unhealthy food, it was on the table. You know, that was really eureka moments for me. So I thought I came all the way to Yale School of Public Health. And here, I mean, you know, if you are a leader, you need to lead by example. And then I said, hey, they are the leaders in public health. And here, so I, the dean, uh, was very uh, kind, and I think I worked very closely with him. And he was sitting there. I said, come on. 
you have got the biggest obesity problem in America, and then your breakfast table reflects that. And by the way, most of us are doctors here. And I think, what is this? And then he started laughing. He said, I knew you were going to ask that you came from UK. I said, yes. So he said, I think it is very difficult to change people's attitude. Uh, I said, well, you are meant to change people's behavior, the public behavior, the population health behavior. You need to start from home. And he said, if I don't put those bagels and if I don't put those uh, donuts, they won't turn up in breakfast meeting. And once they turn up, then I can change their behavior. So I think he had a good logic. So you've told us um, about the pa- your experiences in the past. You've told us about you know, what the changes are in present. So now this is the, the worst part, which is what do you think the future is going to look like? So you know, what changes do you think you're going to see in public health in the next 10, 20 or so years? Well, Daisy, if I have a crystal ball, I think my prediction would be still good as far as you can see through the crystal ball. The prediction is that the importance of public health will increase in the future. Why? Because there are many positive things came out of COVID, which means that we need to be looking at things more proactively. We cannot be more reactive. So this is one thing I see that in the future, the public health importance will increase. Second, already mentioned that we need to be thinking, moving away from acute to chronic. The other thing I feel that data and, uh, data and digital health is going to be the future. So there will be more data. People would be, people who are working in the engine rooms, they will have more ammunition to use to improve the health of the nation and to fight with the diseases. And the best ammunition they will have is the data. So it means that as we have more data, then the people, they will have better, uh, they will have more opportunities to improve the health outcomes. The other thing you would realize that the two biggest cost generator in any healthcare system is elderly population and the chronic diseases, because we are becoming the victim of our own successes. If you look at the last century, we have added almost 40 years through public health intervention to the average life expectancy. So I'm sure you would see every other day uh, uh, the news that Queen has sent a card to someone who was celebrating their 100th birthday. And this is becoming a common news. So the more people are living over 100 years. So they have got quantity of life, but the quality of life is challenging. So it means it's high cost. So it means that we need to create a value-based healthcare system. It means we need to think what is the best way to add life to years and years to life, it is not a cliche word. It means that you need to improve the outcomes for the minimum cost. And that is where the public health also comes into play. As I mentioned, healthcare public health deals with the planning of the health services. That I think that's the reason I feel the future is very bright for public health, speci- public health speciality and for public health. Because these are two separate things. Public health speciality is being delivered by the public health specialist. And the public health is how the public perceive health. So I think the public is becoming more aware of health and health is physical, mental, and social well-being. When NHS was created, we were keen about the physical health. Now we're talking about social well-being. I think I'm very proud that uh, the Scotland has done a lot of things on the well-being side. The public health Scotland is working very hard on the well-being. So as public health, England, which used to be Public Health England. I think in the UK, but I think if you look at internationally, you mentioned that I have 
I think I have a special interest on competitive healthcare systems. And I realized that the why the Scandinavian countries, their life expectancy is very high and public satisfaction is very, very good because they believe in well-being. And I think the public is now started realizing that they need to have wholesome health, not just have the physical health, but wholesome health. So this is the future I'm predicting that in future that we, we, will have, uh, we will have more need for public health competencies, but at the same time, those competencies would be used to improve the health of the nation in the best possible manner. That's really interesting. Thank you. And of course, as you say, you know, the, the future of public health impacts on, on all of us because it, it's in all of our lives. But one group in particular, of course, is are the people who are going to be working in this future public health system. So if there are people listening who are students thinking about, you know, how to specialise or even school children who are thinking about going to study medicine, is there anything you would recommend? You know, how do you get into public health? What, what, are, the, what are the skills or the attributes or the pathways to become a public health specialist? Well, Lizzie, I think you asked me before, how did I end up in public health? And I told you, yes, you need to have the aptitude, you need to have a guidance, and then you need to have some role models. So I think your question is very good. It's about the guidance, how best they can get some guidance. And I always say, I think the whatever career you choose, doesn't matter public health, any specialty you choose, you need to think about how you would be successful in that specialty. And I think I've got, for, for myself, I have a relatively simple formula. I say you need to have the passion, you need to have the professionalism, and you need to have the performance. So you need to be thinking on those lines. Do I have the passion for public health? I mentioned to you before. Have I got the thinking? Do I think about the system? Do I think on the prevention side? Do I have uh, the perseverance and patience to wait to see the results of my efforts? Because in clinical medicine, I remember when I was a pediatrician, I could see that when patient was coming in, a child was coming with asthma and I've given him the nebulizer. After two hours, the child is happy running around. And I could see the results of my efforts very quickly. It doesn't happen in public health. It takes years. You need to have that. So the guidance is that what you should do, uh, you need to think about your aptitude and personality. And I'm talking about in a scientific manner. There are many tests available now. For example, if you're introvert and you're not extrovert, uh, I'm not saying introvert won't be successful, but the chances are if you are unable to communicate, work with and through people because you're introvert, chances are it will, you will struggle because it will be a challenge for you. So why don't you have some personality tests because I always was very keen that how my personality is and personality of my team, that's the way you can bring the best out of teams. Second, it is a team sport. There are certain speciality you can win or lose individually, but this is a team sport. You are, and each and everyone in public health team is a leader. And I think you need to have the leadership skills. So if you think that, yes, I think I've got excellent academic skills, but you need to have that. And third thing is that you need to have a taster. For example, many of the medical schools are having an intercalated program. If you would like to really want to dip your toes in public health, do your BSE in public health. And many of the, Edinburgh is doing it. Uh, many of the universities are doing it. So in that way, you get a taster. And if you like it, then when you finish your training, you can go ahead. 
And last but not least, I think you need to, I mentioned about the role models. And I think it's always good to go and meet with people who has done these things. So I, I uh, say I, I used to be international faculty advisor for faculty of public health. And I always open my door for people to come and talk to me about the pros and cons. Maybe I am passion, passionate about public health, but I always tell people that there are other challenges. For example, there's no uh, chances that there won't be any work-life balance in public health. You need to be very disciplined. You, you can't give your pager and, say, uh, and leave the hospital and then and switch off. And at times in public health, it won't be possible. So I think these are many things you can do in order to pursue your career in public health. But in summary, understand your passion, try to understand that what skill makes you need on top of your medical and clinical competencies, and then have a taster and meet with the people who have done and dusted it. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely fascinating. For our case study today, we're not going to look at a patient as such. It's difficult to talk about patients when we're talking about public health. We're all on the receiving end of the successes and failures of public health provision. Instead, we're going to look at a person whose death played a role in a major public health improvement, Susanna Ely and the Broad Street Pump. So we're beginning in Soho, London, in 1854, where a water pump sits at the intersection of Broad Street and Cambridge Street. Disease was rife in poorer parts of London in the 1850s, particularly cholera. It wasn't yet known how infectious diseases spread, and it was widely believed that miasma, or bad air, caused disease. This miasma was thought to manifest through unpleasant smells, and so placing perfumes or sweet-smelling herbs close to the nose, often through a handkerchief or scent bottle, was thought to protect you from disease. The doctor John Snow had been trying to track the spread of cholera for a number of years. A single outbreak could kill thousands or even tens of thousands, so identifying the source was crucial to saving many lives. Snow was not completely convinced by the miasma theory, noting that people could live next door to a family that died without themselves being affected. Because the early symptoms of cholera were usually vomiting and diarrhea, Snow surmised that it was likely connected to something in their food or drink. When cholera struck in part of Soho in 1854, Snow carefully recorded each death, creating a map to track the outbreak. Through this, he figured out that the deaths were clustered around the Broad Street pump. Susanna Ely was a notable anomaly to this pattern, however. She, and a few other cholera victims, had lived far away from Broad Street in the Hampstead area. Snow's research, however, uncovered that Ely had previously lived in Broad Street. She liked the water from the Broad Street pump so much, however, that she paid to have it delivered to her home in Hampstead every day. This final piece of evidence put together the puzzle of the source of the Broad Street cholera outbreak. It was later discovered that a cesspit close to the pump had been leaking into the Broad Street well. The water from the pump was contaminated by sewage, the cause of the cholera outbreak. Snow used his evidence, including the case of Susanna Ely, to persuade local authorities to remove the handle of the pump, and it is an important early example of the use of data and evidence to track disease outbreaks.
Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage. And we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.